Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I love sports. And in sports, whenever a team wins the championship game, there's always, right after, the trophy presentation where they roll the stage out onto the field and they shoot off the confetti and they hand that big shiny trophy to the winning team. And they go around, they interview coaches and players and and talk about their success and what it feels like to be a champion. Then the team gets to go on a victory tour. There are interviews and parties and there's a big parade. Some of you may have been there when the Royals, the Chiefs won, you're downtown for the parade. And this victory is a time of celebrating all that the team has accomplished and declaring to the world that they are the champions. Romans chapter 8 is a bit like the Christian's victory tour. It's been hailed by many throughout church history as the greatest chapter in the Bible. One book I read said it's been described as the inner sanctuary of the Christian life, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and the highest peak in a range of mountains. While, yes, we know every word God speaks is great, and while, yes, there are many incredible passages in this book, Romans 8 is uniquely and particularly powerful because it's a chapter of declaration. There are no commands in this chapter. Sure, there are applications and things we're going to take away and apply to our lives. But the thrust of this chapter is not what we should do, but rather who we are in Christ. This chapter is a declaration of the gospel in every single section. That's why I say it's like a victory tour. It's a celebration of what God has done in Christ and what it means for those of us who know him and trust in him. While we could spend months and months walking through this one chapter, we're going to take two weeks. (laughs) We're going to cut it right in half. And therefore, it's going to be a bit like drinking from a fire hose. But it is going to be great because like drinking from a fire hose, we're going to get drenched in God's word and God's grace. So let's walk through the first 17 17 verses of this chapter piece by piece, looking at God's message through the Apostle Paul to us, and then we'll come in at the end and apply it to our lives today. But look with me now at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We got to stop right there. (laughs) Because this is the verse. Like this is the banner that flies over the entire chapter. And really, I would argue the whole Bible. I love this verse. It's one I memorized a long time ago. And I often tell people this verse and Romans 8.28 are my favorite verses. In fact, if you woke me up in the middle of the night and said, Micah, there's a crowd in your front yard. You've got to come out on the porch and preach something. It's unlikely. But if it happened, I would throw a shirt on. That would be proper. And I would go preach Romans 8.1 until the cows come home or until everybody gets saved, whatever happens first. I love it. I do. And notice this verse. It has the all-important word, therefore. What's it there for? Well, it's there Thank you. It's there because it means Paul is summarizing everything we've seen thus far. 
So in light of all we've seen, because we're sinners who've rebelled against God, because we deserve God's judgment, because God sent Jesus to die in our place, because faith alone is what saves us, because we've been united to Jesus, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to also see the significance of this verse in light of chapter 7. If you're here the last two weeks, you know chapter 7 was a much tougher passage. Paul spoke very openly about his struggle with sin. He spoke for all of us when he said, I do the very things I don't want to do and I can't do the things I know I'm supposed to do. He talked about how we have this sin nature, this body of death. We have this war being waged inside of us. So there's all this frustration and defeat in the battle with sin. We, we feel helpless and powerless. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? And right after, right after that, Paul hits us with Romans 8.1. It's like Rocky Balboa getting up off the mat in the last round and knocking out his opponent. It's that strong of a statement. Despite our struggle, despite our sin, Despite our failures, there is no condemnation. That word condemnation is another one of those legal terms Paul loves to use. To be condemned means to be guilty, to be sentenced to a punishment. And that's exactly what you and I deserve as sinners who have rebelled against God. But he says for those who trust in Jesus, there's none of that. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, dying for our sins, rising for our justifications, there's no more condemnation for us. There's no more judgment for God to give because he's already poured it out on Christ. And this is true for us now. Did you see that? There is therefore now no condemnation. It's not just one day when we get to heaven. We are right now forgiven and accepted and loved by God. And this is so important for us. In fact, you need to memorize this verse and remind yourself of it often. Because there are many of us Christians who live with this nagging feeling that God is disappointed in us. That he only loves us because he has to, that we're just a burden for him to bear. Friends, I want you to know that that could not be more false or unbiblical for those who are in Christ When God looks at you and thinks of you and hears from you, he is not shaking his head. He is not wagging his finger. He's not saying, oh, here we go again. Can't you do anything right? He is pleased with you. And think about what you see when you look at your child or your your grandchild. He sees that in you times a trillion. He could not love you any more or any less than he loves you right now because his love is not based on you. And he doesn't just love you, he also likes you. (laughs) All of this is true because here's the key, we are in Christ Jesus. The world loves this this kind of really encouraging self-help talk. We hear these kind of messages, people say, you know, you're special and you're enough and you're worthy and you're forgiven. But what the world misses is what makes those truths a reality. We're forgiven and special and accepted only because we're in Christ. We've been saved by him. We've been joined to him. And all of this and more is ours because of Jesus. I'd love to linger here and keep going, but alas, we must keep going. Look at verses 2 through 4. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's no condemnation. For the Christian, here's why. Because the Holy Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. We are no longer slaves to sin. We just sang it. We now have freedom from it. We're no longer cursed by death. We now have eternal life. And this is possible because he says, verse 3, God did what the law could not do. We talked the last several weeks a lot about the law. It's the Mosaic law, the law God gave Moses on Mount Sinai to give to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments and all those regulations we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God called the people to obey and be holy. But here's what they found. They could not do it. And they mistakenly believed if they just tried harder and did more, then maybe God would accept them and save them. But we've seen this didn't work, and it doesn't work for us either. We said last week we cannot obey our way out of sin. We cannot fix our problem by trying harder, doing more, being better. We're sinners. And our sin even causes us to corrupt the perfect law. And it becomes a stumbling block to us. So God did what the law couldn't do. And he sent his own son. Think about that. God sent Jesus to the earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't mean that Jesus sinned. He he didn't. He was perfect. But it means that he lived in a human body where he experienced all the pain and suffering and temptation that we do. You see, that was a key part of God's rescue plan. Jesus had to become like us in order to save us. We needed someone to take our place. We needed a representative, a perfect sacrifice, and that's who Jesus was. On the cross, God condemned sin in the flesh. He punished sin and evil right there. But instead of punishing us, the ones who deserved it, he punished Jesus in our place. So that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This means that through Jesus, we can actually live out the law. We can obey God and honor him like the law originally called people to do. And here's how we do that. Here's the key because, as he said, we walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. This is going to be his focus in these next few verses. He wants us to see the difference between flesh and spirit. What does he mean by that? What do those two terms mean? Is he talking about our our outer body and our inner body, our soul, our person? What's going on here? Well, let's see. Let's see what this means. Look at verses 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's describing here two groups of people, those who live And walk and are in the flesh. And those who live and walk and are in the spirit. We notice that word spirit is capitalized. Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. What about that word flesh? In the English language, when we hear the word flesh, we think body. 
right? Or we think of our physical skin and bones. But that's not the way Paul uses the word flesh here. He's not saying that our inner person is good and our outer person, our body's bad. We know our physical bodies were created by God. They were part of his good creation. We know one day when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected. We will live forever in bodies that have been restored and redeemed. So flesh does not mean here physical body. Rather, that word flesh refers to our sin nature. We've seen all throughout Romans that we're born sinners. From the day we breathe our first breath, there's something fundamentally wrong in us. We are broken. We have this bent away from God, or or rather really against God. And that goes all the way back, as we saw in Romans 5, 5, Adam and Eve in Genesis. So we all have this sin nature, but when we become followers of Jesus, we receive a new nature. We become new creations, and God the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Our old self, our sin nature, has been crucified. It no longer controls us like the master it once was. But... And here's the key. It's still there. We still have a broken, fallen, sinful nature in us, even though we're saved by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul described in Romans 7. That's why we feel that internal struggle, that inner battle. It's our fallen, sinful nature at war with our new spirit-filled, redeemed nature. So we still have a flesh. But Paul makes clear here in Romans 8 that we are not in that flesh. We do not live in it. He's describing here the difference between non-believers and believers. He says they, lost people, non-believers, people without Jesus, they set their minds on the flesh. They think about sin and their sinful desires and those desires rule over them. He says they're hostile to God. And here's the key. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the state of someone who is lost. They can't. They're not able to do anything that is pleasing or obedient to God. And lest we get all haughty and prideful, that was us too before Jesus. That's the difference between lost and saved, flesh and spirit. And here's where he lands it for us. Look at verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. There's a declaration. There's that celebration again. As followers of Jesus, from the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell in us. It's not a force. It's not a mystery. It's not a power. He's God. And he's living in us. And the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a marker that we're saved. The Spirit is God's proof that someone belongs to him. And because we have the Spirit in us, we have life. Even though we still have this sinful flesh that causes us to sin and struggle, we have Holy Spirit power living in us. And friends, this is no ordinary power. Look at verse 11. Spirit that lives in us, he says, is the same spirit. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. 
We just saw that video about that, the song. Are you tracking? Do you understand the significance of that? The same power that gave new life to a dead, decaying Jesus, the same power that defeated sin and death, the same power that rolled the stone away and walked out victorious is now available inside of you. If we could grasp that truth, if we could really lean into that, think of how different life would be. What would we have to be afraid of? What would we have to worry about? Why would we ever have to feel defeated? We have the Spirit in us. God has not left us in our sinful flesh, but he's given us the same power, the same person of the Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus and raised him from the dead. And here's what that means practically. Look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I said that there were no commands in this passage, and that's true. This is technically not a command. It's actually a promise. We are called to live a particular way. We are debtors, but it's not to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you're, you live for your sinful nature, you'll die. Those who live a life dominated by sin and following its desires will die. And that includes eternal death. But if we put to death our sinful deeds and sin nature, we will live. And that's the path. That's the call of the Christian life. It's, it's to continue day by day, moment by moment, to yield our lives to the Spirit's control. To walk by the Spirit all the while repenting and putting to death our sin. And he continues to unpack what this means. And we have this victory. Look at verses 14 through 17. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Here's another great declaration to live by and to know in your heart. Because we have the Spirit, we are sons and daughters of God. We've been adopted into his family. This is why the adoption of children today is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel we have. This is why as Christians we should all prayerfully consider foster care and adoption or at the least support those who do. Not only are we being obedient to God's command all throughout the Bible to care for widows and orphans, but it's also a testimony of what God has done for us in Christ. To take someone who is not your birth child and say to them, they are mine. I choose to love them and care for them and bring them into my family. And I'm going to treat them just as if they were my very own because now they are. That's what God has done for us in Christ. We were sinners, rebels, enemies of God, fully deserving his wrath and judgment. But because of Jesus, I am now his son. He loves me and he sees me as his son. 
And here's what this means. I no longer have a spirit of slavery. I no longer have to live in fear. We just sang that song I love. What an incredible truth this is for us. Think about this for a minute. Before Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We were bound by fear. We didn't know what was going to happen to us. We didn't know if, if there was a God or if there was any hope. We didn't know what would happen when we die. This is why so many people live in fear of death. But when we become a child of God, we are released from that prison. We are adopted as sons and daughters. And now through the Spirit, we can call God Abba. That word Abba is the word Jesus used when he spoke directly to God. It's a very important word. In fact, it's one of the only words that is not translated into the Greek language. It's not even translated into English. They left it in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus himself spoke. Why'd they do that? Why'd they keep this word in its original language? Because this is a word of great intimacy. It's a personal title. You know, in my life, people refer to me with different titles. When someone doesn't know me at all, they might call me Mr. Hayes. <laughs> people here at church tend to call me Pastor Micah. My friends call me Micah or dude or sometimes worse. <laughs> then at home, I'm known as dad or daddy to my kids. There's different levels of relationship that are conveyed in how you refer to me. If one of you were to call me dad, that would be weird. If one of my kids were to call me Mr. Hayes, that would be weird too. A few weeks ago, our little kids director, Jen Keepis, told me that my two-year-old son, Ben, popped his head out of his Sunday school class as she walked by and said, plain as day to her, he said, where's Micah? <laughs> so we got some things to work on, but my point is, what you call someone conveys your level of relationship with them. So the fact that we can call God Abba, the same title that Jesus used in his perfect relationship with his father, the one he'd known and loved for all eternity past, the one he'd never ever sinned against, the one he had this beautiful connection, the fact that we can use that same word, what does that say about the Christian life? What does that say about the way God thinks about you? We have an intimate, personal relationship with God. We are his loved and known sons and daughters. Think about the way you treat your kids, the way you look at your kids. God sees you infinitely more than that. Not only that, but we're his heirs. Look again at verse 16 and 17. To be an heir means that we have an inheritance from God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. This means whatever Jesus received from God, we will receive it too. The love that Jesus has from God, we inherit that too. The kingdom that Jesus has from God, we inherit that too. The joy that Jesus has from God, we inherit that too. The safety and security that Jesus has from God, we inherit that too. Every single promise of God, we also inherit through Jesus as a fellow heir because every single promise is yes and amen in him. And one day, we're going to experience all of that in its fullness. But until then, we also inherit something else with Jesus. Not nearly as good. We inherit his suffering. 
There's going to be difficulty and challenges. It's the last part of this passage. Just like Jesus, we are going to suffer in order that we may be glorified. We're going to talk a lot more about that suffering and what it looks like next week as we finish up Romans 8. But let me close out today with three applications, three things we can take away from this text. Here's the first. Number one, you have victory in Christ. You know, all of us have a sin struggle. We all do. We all have something that pesters us and continually attacks us and tempts us. That that one habit we just can't shake. For you, that may be something that we think of as socially acceptable, like worry or materialism or pride or greed. Or it may be something that we tend to keep more secret, like a sexual sin or drunkenness or another addiction. But all of us have something we we struggle with. And and what we tend to do as Christians is we tend to become fixated on that sin. We frame our entire struggle on trying our hardest not to do that thing we really want to do. And we think about it and we think about it and then we mess up and we feel so guilty and ashamed and we're never going to do it again until we do. And our entire struggle becomes framed by defeat. Listen, that is not the way. Christians should battle with sin because in Jesus, we do not operate from a place of victory, or sorry, we don't operate from a place of defeat and despair. We operate from a place of victory. We have victory over sin in Jesus, and that has to be the identity that we fight this battle from. Notice how Paul speaks about our victory with all the present tense language. There's now no condemnation. It's right now. We are set free from sin now. We have the Holy Spirit in us now. We are sons and daughters and heirs now. Yes, we fall. Yes, we stumble. Yes, we give in. Yes, some days we feel like a wreck. But there is nothing that can change your place of victory because you didn't get it. You didn't win it. Jesus did, and he's given it to you. So when you sin again, It's not a time to beat yourself up and despair and wallow. It's also not a time to suppress and ignore it and try to move on. Rather, it's a time to go to the Lord, confess it, and repent. Reminding yourself that there is now no condemnation. My identity is safe and secure in Jesus. I am victorious in him, and this sin has no hold on me. That's who we are. That's the declaration part of it. And then this leads us into action. Number two, number two, live in your victory in Christ. With our identity as victorious in Christ in our hearts and minds, now we need to live it out personally. It's not enough to step back and say, oh, man, Romans 8. That's that's a great word. That's a really nice thought. God gave us this to live out. In the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, which is one of the greatest Christian books ever written. encourage you to read it. He talks about the Christian life as a form of pretending. Listen to this. He says there are two kinds of pretending. There is a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing. As when a man pretends he's going to help you instead of really helping you. But there's also a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. When you're not feeling particularly friendly, but you know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner 
and behave as if you were a nicer person than you actually are. (laughs) And in a few minutes, as we've all noticed, you will be feeling really friendlier than you were. Very often, the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. That is why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop. But all the time, they're hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-up helps them to grow up in earnest. This is a game-changer if you think about this. In order to live in our victory, we have to do some pretending. This is not like the kind of fake Bad pretending where you try and pretend and act like something you're not. No, to be a Christian is to try and act like something I already am. It's to live up to what I know to be true of my identity in Christ. Because look, I don't always feel victorious. I don't always feel like a loved child of God. I don't always feel like I have the Spirit living in me. But I'm going to choose to live my life as if those things are true because they are. Those things are true despite how I feel, despite how I perform, despite if I had my quiet time this week, despite if I sinned and messed up again, despite if I got mad. Those things are true. And usually when I live that way, the feelings will follow. So ask yourself, how would a person who is a victorious, spirit-filled child of God and co-heir with Christ live in your place? How would that person live at your job? How would that person live in your neighborhood? How would that person live in your marriage? How would that person live with your friends? What would you think about? How would that person interact with others? How would they deal with sin? How would they spend their time? Then go and live that way. Live in your victory in Christ because that's who you are. Here's third and last. Number three, Live out your victory in Christ. We live in and we live out. This is the missional call from this text. Because this is what the world will notice and see and desire. When we live like the Christian life is just keeping a bunch of rules, when we act like following Jesus means we can't do this bad stuff and, well, i got to go to church and i got to try to do all this good stuff, why would anyone in the world want to follow Jesus? They can get that in every other religion. They can find plenty of places where attendance is required and dues are paid and morals are taught. The Rotary Club, school, whatever. What the world needs to see is not that we have good morals or good traditions or family values, but that we have Jesus. And that's what makes the difference in our lives. And there should be a discernible difference in the way we live from the way everyone else lives because we live from victory in Christ. We're on the victory parade. We're on the bus riding downtown waving. Look at us. So do your neighbors and coworkers see that you have no condemnation in Christ? Do they see that you're spirit-filled, child of God? Do they see the victory you have in Jesus? Do they desire to have what you have? And that's the power of really grasping this word of God and, and living it out. And it all starts with Jesus. There is now no condemnation in Christ. Do you know him? Have you experienced that? If you have, then it's time to live in it and live it out for the world to see. To celebrate 
the parade, the tour. Jesus is our victory. Would you bow your heads with me?